The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. We come worshipping the risen Christ this morning. Lord, we thank you for the work of Jesus in our lives. We pray if there be one here this morning that does not know him, the way, the truth, and the life, that today would be the day that they humbly repent and turn and trust in him. And so, Father, we, we come this morning now looking to your word. I pray for power and wisdom. I pray for your spirit to work in my heart, in the hearts of those who are hearing here in the gymnasium, online this morning. Dear Jesus, I pray that you be glorified. And Lord, help us now where we find ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles this morning, take them and turn to Habakkuk chapter 1 this morning. We have been there for the last couple weeks now. We missed last week because of communion. We will finish up, Lord willing, Habakkuk next week. What are we to do as a people when we perceive that our world is falling apart? When we sense that the bottom has dropped out. When around us is confusion and chaos, despair and doubt in the world in which we inhabit. And what does it mean then for believers in Christ to live in such a world? The book of Habakkuk has been for me, and I hope for you as well, a great encouragement for weary souls. And so this morning, we want to look once again at this great prophet in this short book. And I'd like to challenge you this morning and challenge myself not to waste our waiting. Not to waste our waiting. And so this morning, we will look at Habakkuk's first two complaints that he makes to God and God's two responses and, and my, my prayer is that as we look at Habakkuk's situation, that we draw the right conclusions to our own life and our own times, and that we're honestly helped this morning in our waiting. So Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry? And thou wilt not hear, even cry out unto thee of violence. It's an interesting word that Habakkuk uses there when he says, Oh Lord, how long, of course, but that I, I should cry out. And it literally means to shout. It's not just a silent weeping that no one sees or understands. It is a shout. Um, it is actually a roar. And I'm sure many of you have been there before in a situation or a circumstance or in life now where it's like, ah. This is what he's talking about. And he has looked at his own culture and he has viewed his situation. And the fact is, he, you'll see as we read, he has this sense as he looks around to his world of just being powerless and what's happening. And so he cries out. He shouts out. He roars. Listen to the issues now that he's roaring about. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? 
even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. The wicked compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceeds. And so, so he, 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 he surveys his culture. He cries out. He's roaring in his soul. Uh, he feels powerless, and he says, this is the reason. Number one, excessive violence. He looks at his culture, and what he sees is a violent, violent people. And if you were to check back on our biblical references of the time and the situation and look at rabbinical teaching as well, that's exactly what was happening. From the king at the highest point to the lowest, there was violence, destructive violence throughout the land. Everywhere, might makes right, and people suffered. Not only that, he says, that there are those who raise up strife. And that's a word I think that we're com- we know uh, he's just full of strife or whatever, but it, it has a connotation of a lawsuit, like litigation. Like, I have a problem with this person, and so I will resolve it by going to court, by finding a lawyer. It is strife. And in this society, litigation was everywhere. Violence, litigation, and then he says contention. Contention. It has the idea of people devouring one another over trivial matters. Devouring one another over trivial matters. Habakkuk looks out at society and people are just ripping one another apart over trivial matters. And then he says, the law is slacked, it's paralyzed, it's no longer effective. And, and certainly in his mind, he had just witnessed uh, the great king Josiah, a godly king, loved the Lord, finds the law, reinstitutes it, and, and there's almost like this, this national revival. It's as if the nation is turning back to God, back to the way of human flourishing. Because God's law is good, and it's right, and it's the way we're supposed to live. And so he has seen that, and now the king's son, Jehoiachin, has completely dismantled that. And what Habakkuk is seeing now is the unraveling, the the moral fabric of his culture, completely unraveling. Mob violence rules. There are no consequences for their actions. No one is held accountable. And and just so that you know, there is no society in the world that can last in that environment. None. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that we, we, great, we, we place great stress on the importance of exegeting the scripture. We want to open it and read it and understand what it says. And we understand this morning that in order to understand the text, we've got to look at the historical and, and, and literary context. And it's imperative this morning that as we look at Habakkuk, we must know what the original writer meant and what he was saying to the original audience. Because if you don't know that, I submit to you, you don't even understand the text. And if you don't understand the text, there's no way to make real, substantial, 
personal application, you get in trouble. And so it's imperative as we look at this text this morning, we understand what the original hearers would have heard and what he is saying to the people he's writing to. With that in mind this morning, it is not a stretch just from reading those first four lines that we in our culture and in our circumstances are looking around to a world that seems to be wrong. Really wrong. And it's almost as if we're powerless. What do you do when you see what he saw? And there's a sense, I don't know, maybe this morning I'm preaching to me, and if I am, just listen to my confessions this morning. But there's a sense in my soul of a roar a crying out of a powerlessness, a powerlessness in my own being. I think of this situation that Habakkuk finds himself in, and I cannot stop but think about our own situation. This morning, and you might not believe me, I'm not trying to be political at all. And if you take that away from this morning, then that's on you. I'm just telling you where I feel and what I sense this morning. Um, there's a sense this morning for me of the stress of lockdowns, of mandates, um, of um, emergency orders. And, and no matter where you fall on the spectrum, to be powerless, to have no say, no recourse, and, and nothing to respond with. Um, I, I feel and sense that over the last 18, at least 18 months, almost like, for me, maybe not you, but for like a, like a beat down. Do you know? Like a beat down. And I'm not exaggerating. Barna just had a, a poll that came out in the U.S., and I'm sure we're not far off of this, but they said due to COVID-19, over the next 18 months, one out of five churches will close permanently. Permanently. And I get it. And I understand it. And, 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 I, and I, I, I wish that you could know that when it comes to leadership in this church, and again, I can't speak for all of our elders. I might get it close, but that's okay. I'm speaking for myself this morning. I am so tired of all of it, I, I'm tired and weary and worn of what this has done to our churches, what it has done to our families, what it has done to our marriages, what it has done to our young people who are depressed and discouraged, what it has done to our economic situation. It is everywhere. And then to try to keep this idea of unity on a razor's edge with every walk of life. And I have to tell you this morning, there are times that I cry out and say, Lord, why and how long? And again, I'm not being political. You can fall on any end of the spectrum, but the truth is, you must feel this unless you've been living under a rock over the last two years. This sense of powerlessness. We see the stress of where we're at now. We see the senseless violence in our own world today. Again, turn on the news. And, and listen, we're in Chatham-Kent, and forever it's like, well, we're Chatham-Kent. It's safe. It's cozy. It's Mayberry. 
Ask our officers. It is not Mayberry. This town has changed over the last several years. And there is violence everywhere. And we see it in our culture. We feel it. Assaults and violence and video games. And not just what our young people are playing, who have no idea how to categorize these things, but what grown men continue to play. And let's not even speak of Black Friday, which in the States, it's the day after Thanksgiving where people almost trample each other to death for a good deal. We see a society of litigation. And again, I'm not, I'm not looking at Habakkuk now. I'm looking at us. It used to be the way to get rich and to prosper was to work hard, to be a man or woman of integrity, and now the quickest way to get rich is to have a lawsuit. Heaven forbid you bump into some, the back of someone's car or they slip on your sidewalk today. You can expect to be served. Social media. The idea of contention. Devouring one another over trivial details. That would never happen on social media, would it? That you post something, and it could be as innocent as a dress, the color of a dress. Remember that? Is it black? Is it blue? And you have trolls now who have nothing better to do than to find a post and just devastate and say things that no one would say face to face. This is the world we live in. That you can take a small detail and completely devour someone over that detail. We are surrounded by wickedness. Justice is perverted. People are getting away with murder, and mobs are ruling. So, welcome to church. And, and maybe it's me, and I'm okay if it's me this morning, but I sense for many of us today, as we gauge and survey our culture, the cry or the roar or the shout is, how long? Oh, God, how long? How long? And so we see in verse 5 of our text that God responds. He responds. And, and before we just brush over this, um, it's worth noticing that in his cry and in his confusion and in his despair, he cries out to God, God, how long and why? And the God of heaven answers him. And the God of heaven need not answer him. The high and lofty one who is holy, who inhabits eternity, who knows the end from the beginning, who is all-powerful, this God who dwells in a high and holy place, what is man that he's mindful of him, or the son of man that he even cares? But he does, and so he responds to the prophet's cry. And we see this over and over again. You remember Job? Like, hey, I want an audience with God. I want to know what's happening. God, why won't you answer me? And God does answer him. He says, Job, put your big boy pants on. You want to talk? We'll do this. And by the end, Job says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. And though I had no rights to ask, my God knelt and answered me. This is the God of the Bible. I, I, I'm convinced that for all of us this morning, we have to spend the rest of our lives reprogramming our brain because our thoughts of who this God is are completely wrong. 
Certainly the God of heaven is holy and just and righteous and loving. Therefore, he will judge sin, all sin, yours and mine. That's the truth. But this very God is a God who loves you, who created a perfect world so that men and women could reflect his glory and they could love him and love one another. This is a God of mercy and compassion, a God who stays a God who hears, a God who has entered into our suffering, a God who loves and cares for you in the deepest sorrow of your heart. This is the God. I was reading a couple weeks ago, I think it was Jonathan Edwards, I'm not sure, but he was talking about God's judgment, and he said this, judgment is God's strange work. That's not his default state. That's not where he normally goes. Judgment is his strange work, Mercy and loving kindness is his natural work. And God, in grace and mercy, speaks out and answers the prophet in his cry. And look what he says in verse number five. He says, Behold, you among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you, for I will raise up the Chaldeans. And so, so God says, okay, I hear your cry, I hear your roar, I will answer. I do see, and God does see, and God does know. And all of the injustice and all of the wrong, and he sees it all. And he says, I, I do see it. And Habakkuk, you're right. It needs to be responded to. No society can live like this forever. They are destroying themselves. I will judge them. But not only do I see, what I will do is going to shock you. And the shock is that what he's going to do is to judge his people. Now he will bring the Babylonians down, the Chaldeans, to be his rod of justice against his own people. It happened 150 years earlier than this to the northern kingdom when the Assyrians came down. And now he says, okay, this is what's going to happen. I'm bringing them down. We won't read verses 6 through 11, but listen to the description of what's about to happen in the near future. After Habakkuk cries against his culture, God says, I will judge. This is who's coming, the Babylonians. They're bitter and hasty. They march through the earth. They're unstoppable. They're full of dread. They're dreaded and fearsome. They make their own justice. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're more fierce, they're, they're more fierce than wolves. The eagles and the vultures circle around the bodies and the corpses that are left. They come for violence they gather captives. They scoff at nations. Um, their fortresses who are, who are defending themselves are a joke to them. Might is their God. And so Habakkuk, who's just cried out for justice, which is right, now hears how it's coming, and this is terrifying. Could you imagine? I, I mean, just think of the description. This is terrifying what's about to come. And so he hears this, and, and he can't believe what God just said, he knows God, this covenant God, he knows his love, he knows his kindness, he does know his justice, but this he has no category for. And so he then, again, in two, is going to bring his second complaint. And he starts with the confession of faith, which is always a good place to start. He says, you are from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, that's your prerogative, I know that. And, O oh, mighty God, or rock, thou hast established them for correction. 
thou art of pure eyes and to behold evil, you're holy and you can't look on iniquity. And now here's his complaint. Wherefore, you look upon them that deal treacherously and you hold your tongue when the wicked devour the man that is more righteous than him. And so he's, he's confused. He says, God, I know I want justice and your people are wrong and they deserve it. But are you serious? That you're going to bring down this nation that is wicked, they're ungodly. You think we're bad. They're worse than we are. And this is, I think this is the false. We're bad, sure, but we're not as bad as them. And so Habakkuk is, is confused. He says some other things about them. And then he says this in chapter 2 of verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And this is important now. So his complaints is, is answered. He complains again. And God's about to answer him. And I want you to know something. With the answer that God gives Habakkuk, he's going to tell him two things. And these two things will, will drastically change Habakkuk's mind, his heart, and how he's going to deal with his future. And I'm not exaggerating. You read the end of this book, and you hear what he says, it, it's literally mind-blowing, this adjustment that's made. So listen to God's response now in chapter 2, verse 2. And by the way, um, just that you know, uh, Habakkuk will change. His circumstances won't. Okay? Not only will they not change, they're going to be worse. So, happy endings coming your way. You're probably thinking, we knew that already. So, look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon, upon tables that they may run that read it. And there's, there's confusion about what that means, whether he has the tables there and people are running out and reading it, or they read it and they run, or that they read it and they run like a lifestyle that they do what they're supposed to do. It doesn't matter. That was just for me. But then he says this. Verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. And so the first thing he says is, what I said is coming. I'm not changing. I will bring justice. It will happen like I said. The God who knows the end from the beginning. This is going to happen. Habakkuk, wait for it. Strange. Wait for it. That's the first thing he tells him. Here's the second thing he says. After he says, wait for it, he says this. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright. And he's talking about the Babylonians. He says, I know you're bad. They're worse. I got it. But then he says this. But the just shall live by his faith. And so in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his roar, God says two things. Wait for it. And then the just shall live by faith. And this morning, I just want to focus on the waiting for it. I think it's important. For me, anyways. And if you think I'm pulling this out of the context, that yeah, he said wait for it, but Habakkuk wasn't going to do it anyways, look at chapter 3, verse 16. Here's Habakkuk now, toward the end of this, this oracle. He says, when I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones. He's well aware of what's happening. 
and I trembled in myself that I might rest, literally, quietly wait. This is coming. It's terrifying. I know it's coming, but I choose to rest, to quietly wait in the day of trouble. When he comes up onto the people, he will invade them with his troops. And so Habakkuk says, Lord, you said wait. I will wait. Now here's our problem. In our culture, we see waiting as a colossal waste of time. Do we not? We have apps now. And I just learned this. Pastor Dan, we were out the other day. We were going to Tim Hortons. We were in line to grab a couple things. And he said, do you have the app? I said, yeah, I have the app. He said, order. I said, what? You can do that? This is, how, this is my age, right? I am not tech savvy. We're sitting in line. We order it. We tell them we have an order. It's an amazing thing. This is a crazy world we live in. And so... Um, I go up to the thing, it's paid for, everything's great, and it's wonderful. And then on the way back, we had to go back to Tim Hortons. That's all we do all day. We just go to Tim Hortons. He said, I want to do it again so that you can see, you can order it for pickup and walk in and never have to wait. And for me, it's like, that's fantastic. Because we all view waiting as a colossal waste of time. I don't have time for this. I need my coffee now. Right? I don't want to twiddle my thumbs. I don't want to waste time. But that is not the biblical idea of waiting at all. When God says wait, he's not talking about a colossal wait of time, waste of time, nor is he talking about inactivity. Uh, Andrew read Psalm 130, and, and we won't go back to read that this morning. But it's a song of sorrow. And he's depressed, he's despaired, and again, he sees that salvation comes from the Lord. God is the only one that can forgive iniquity. But then he does something interesting I think it's in verse 5, maybe it's verse 6, where he says, um, I will wait on the Lord like those who wait for the morning. And he says it twice. My soul, he's in this, he's involved in this, he says, my soul will wait for them as, as I think it's watchmen who wait for the morning. And he says it twice. I don't know if you've ever been on guard duty before, but if you're on guard duty in the middle of the night, you are longing and waiting for the morning. Because... In darkness, there is danger. In darkness, you don't just wait and sit if you're on guard duty. You look, you watch, you listen. You gauge what's happening, and you're longing for the morning. You are not inactive by any stretch. Even if you're sitting there, you are doing something. You're not dozing off, or you'd be court-martialed. You are, you are actively waiting. I think moms and dads understand this, probably more moms. Um, isn't it true that in the, in the evening, at nighttime, in the middle of the night, everything is worse at night, is it not? Your kids are sick at night. It's terrible. For moms, usually I just go to bed, but moms usually, right? And if you're waiting for the morning as a mom, you're not doing nothing. You're checking in the room. You're feeling your temperature. You're putting a cold cloth on there. You're making them comfort. You are waiting for the morning, but you are not inactive. And when the Bible talks about waiting, I want you to know this morning, when, when, when Habakkuk says, I will wait, it's not as if he's doing nothing. Biblical waiting is active, and not only that, it is hopeful. Uh, look at uh, Psalm 42 this morning. You will know this psalm, even if you don't know where it's found. As the deer panteth for the waters, so my soul longeth after thee. You know the song, right? And we, we sing the song, and we're thankful for the song, and it's beautiful. But I think sometimes what we miss, and what I've missed in the past, is this. 
a, a deer is panting because the deer was on the run. <laughs> the deer was in danger. The deer was running for its life. And that's what's happening in Psalm 52. It's a psalm of anguish. And he says, I'm cast down. I'm despaired. There's turmoil. And then he says this in, in Psalm 42, uh, verse number 5. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And this is an important truth. And just to, did you hear this? Too often in our Christian life, we listen to ourselves in our monologue, and we don't talk to ourselves. Our brain tells us this is terrible, this is bad, you'll never make it, you'll never do it, and we listen to that. This is not what the psalmist is doing. He is telling himself the truth. He says, soul, why are you cast down? Why is there turmoil? He quits listening to himself, and now he tells the truth. He says this. Why are you disquieted within me, turmoil? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. That word hope there means literally wait. They're so synonymous in the Old Testament. When you see wait, it means hope. And so the psalmist says, this is bad. My soul is cast down. What should I do? I should wait. I should hope in the Lord. And this is not sheer optimism. Uh, Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey says, that, that biblical hope and waiting is not optimism where you choose to see how this might turn out and be okay at the end. That's not it. Because Habakkuk, the end is not good. And for some of us, our circumstance, it's, it's not good. But there's a hope in that. It anticipates a future for the better. And as you read the Psalms and you understand what's happening, the hope is not in their circumstances changing their hope is in a person. Soul, why are you cast down? Why is there turmoil within? Hope in the Lord. It's not in my circumstances to change. It's not in, for them to be reelected or them to be elected. It's not in any of that. Hope comes in a person. And his past faithfulness motivates hope for the future. You see it over and over and over again. So this idea of waiting is Hopeful, and it's active. We see it also in the New Testament. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and again, Andrew read it this morning. But he says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner, verse 11, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conversation and godliness? So Peter is saying to people who are suffering and struggling, you know that all these things are going to change, be dissolved. He's talking about the creative order. And what he's talking about is there is coming a day when this creation will be reborn. That every wrong will be made right. And he says, this is what you're waiting for, this new creation. He says in verse 12, looking, which literally is waiting. Every time you see the word look here, it's the word wait. It says hope, activity. Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens, uh, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look, we wait, anticipation, in hope, for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look, waiting, hoping for such things, be diligent that you may be found in him peace, without spot, and blameless. And this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Peter says, okay, you're suffering, you're struggling. 
We're looking and anticipating a future and a hope, a new creation. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he is the first fruit to tell us something is going to follow. Something's following. Not only a change in our lives, but a change in the entire universe. And he says, because you're waiting, because you're hoping in these things, look what it produces. It produces peace. You may be found in peace, which means not being anxious about my circumstance, not being anxious in the world I live. He says, peace, and then he says, spotless. It's my character. That's who I really am. There's something happening in this waiting that's changing me. And then he says, blameless. That's my reputation outside of these walls and outside of your home. He's not just waiting, sitting, doing nothing. He is in hope, anticipating, and he is active in what's, what he's waiting upon. Just as in the Old Testament, in the New our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is in a person. It's the risen Christ. The God-man who lived, who died, was buried, and three days later, he arose again. And just like Old Testament saints, we look back to the risen Christ in order to look forward to a future hope. So, in closing this morning, just two thoughts about waiting this morning. Active hope. This comes from Paul Tripp. Number one, Waiting is not an interruption of God's plan. It is his plan. If you find yourself this morning in a holding pattern, and you have this sense of, I'm just waiting, Lord, how long, why? This is not an interruption of God's plan. It is his plan. It is. And whether we're speaking about Habakkuk and his situation, or our health this morning, there are some folks in our midst, you're not healing. There are others who are waiting on a diagnosis. Or they know the diagnosis. There's still others whose bodies are just declining. And, and you are waiting. You're over 50? Matt, sorry. Doesn't get any better after that. 53 is terrible. I wouldn't know. Someone told me. Whether it's Habakkuk or a health, whether it's a mighty army or a messy relationship. Some of you folks, you are waiting. And God has designed it for you to wait in anticipation, in hope, in activity, in a marriage that's cold. And one partner at this time is not interested. In trouble within the home. Wait. Wait. In broken relationships. In family problems. In work environments. Wait. It is not an interruption. It's part of God's plan. God wastes nothing. There's a quote that says, um, one thing that the gospel does not do is nothing. And that might be a double negative, but the truth is, the gospel will do something. The gospel will harden a heart, or it will bring a heart to salvation. And there's one thing that God does not do, and that is nothing. And in our waiting, when we do it properly, um, something is happening. Whether it's suffering of captivity, or spiritual dryness, discontent, drifting, or indifference, this is an attitude of the heart that says, God, I'm here, I feel nothing, I'm discouraged, these are the circumstances, but in my heart, I am choosing now to wait, to wait actively and in hope. So, waiting is not an interruption of God's plan, it is his plan. Number two, waiting is not wasting our time, but God is at work. God is at work. Do you know when we find ourselves here, what we learn about? if we're listening, if we're waiting, if we're acting, is God's character. Some of us live our whole lives 
doing this and that and never stop to think about the character of the God we serve. But when I'm waiting, when there's nothing I can do, when I understand what it means then to be active and hopeful and anticipate what will come, I learn about his character. This is a God who loves, who cares, is kind, who listens, who stays, who will never leave you nor forsake you. We learn of his character. We learn of who we are. In these holding patterns of our life, you know what we learn? We learn about our temper. We learn about our lack of patience. We learn about our anger, our weaknesses, and our idols, things that we believe will bring us comfort and hope and rest. We learn to grow, to pray, to confess, to struggle, to display holiness and godliness. We learn to worship. It is in these times that we have no place to turn, that God says, wait, wait in anticipation, wait in hope, wait in activity. When we find that all we have is God, we find that God is all we need. And so we come and we worship him. And then we learn to long for home. I know a number of people in our church, they are, um, they're campers. They love camping in tents. I, for the life of me, I do not understand it. I just cannot understand it. My idea of camping is to be in a hotel on a beach on the ocean. That's real camping. But even the campers among us, right, you, you have to be honest, it's really hard. And after a while, after the rain, and after the food is gone, and after being eaten by black flies and mosquitoes, right, and, and after you're drenched to the bone and the weather changes, don't you desire to be like in a normal home? Right? I mean, like, like animals live out there. You long for home. And in our waiting, not sitting on our hands, but looking to the past where Christ redeemed me, he walked out of the grave, he has promised that he will redeem all of us. I look for that and I'm active, I'm seeking God, I'm going before him, I'm praying, I'm confessing, I'm, I'm being honest with him. Uh, it gives me a longing for home, for home. And that encourages me day by day. Author George Matheson, and we're just about done, said this. It, he's talking about patience, but he, he means waiting. Trust me. He says, we commonly associate patience or waiting with lying down. Yet there is a patience that I believe is harder. The patience that can run. The waiting that can run. It is the power to work under stress to continue under hardship, to have anguish in your spirit and still perform daily tasks. This is a Christian thing. Hope, activity, waiting. The hardest thing is that most of us are called to exercise patience or waiting not in a sickbed, but on the street. Do you hear that? This hope, this anticipation, this looking to the past of our redemption, to the future of what Christ has promised. It's not just on my deathbed that I'm waiting, Lord. I am now waiting in the street, in my church, in my marriage, in my community, where God has placed me. Therefore, in our waiting, it is no time to be discouraged, to be disengaged, to be complacent, to cower, to hide, to drift, to be weary, or even to faint. This is not the time for it. 
when we first moved here over 20 years ago now, I, I remember clearly, we were, and some of you have heard this story, but we were packing up a U-Haul. Um, and in the middle of packing up the U-Haul to come within days here, our oldest son, who was 10 at the time, fell out of a tree, broke his arm. And it was one of those breaks where, I think it's broken. It was like, like this is. That, it's broken. You have to be a doctor. It's broken. So Kim, I said, Kim, get ice. We got to stop this. We got to go to the emergency. So she runs in the house, and she's missing forever. Like I, like, I don't know if she was trying to make the ice or it was crazy. And here she fainted. She fainted. It's like, woman, this is no time to faint. No time to faint. And I say to you this morning, this is no time to faint. Church of Jesus Christ, I was reminded on Thursday in one of our men's group, the church of Christ is victorious. It will be victorious. And whether it's victorious in the West or the East, we win all of it. And so in hope, we anticipate Christ has finished it. He has risen victoriously. He is the first fruit. And what is coming is good. It's good. It's joy. It's peace. It's the way the world is supposed to be. And so, my brother or sister, this morning, wherever you find yourself, and you have heartbreak, and you have struggles, and you are just like me, we all deal with what we deal with. But let me encourage you. Wait for it. It is coming. It is coming. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this is what we look for. And this is what gives us strength. And this is, this is waiting in hope and activity as God is working in our lives. Wait for it. Actively waiting. It will come. So wherever you find yourself, stop. God, this is it. I'm going to wait in patience and in hope. I'm going to look forward to what I know is coming because of what you've done in the past. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness. And Lord, I thank you for your word in this example. And, and Lord, I just pray that somehow it makes sense to your people that they connect with this truth. You've called us to wait, not to be indifferent, not to be inactive, but in hope, anticipating what you have for your people. So give us strength, undergird us with your power, change us, help us to worship and to work and to do what you've called us to do. Help us not to be weary and faint, but know the harvest is coming. So give strength, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.